Welcome back to the Dark and Stormy podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you're enjoying it so far, please tell a friend. And if you'd like to help the show further and receive some swag, please consider becoming a patron. Just a few dollars a month will get you all kinds of goodies and bonus content. Just click the link in the show notes to get the details. And so, for part two of our exploration into catfish murders, we will be focusing on just one exceptionally bizarre and unbelievable case. It is certainly one of the craziest true crime stories we've come across, and it's been a very fascinating topic. If you know of any other catfish murders we haven't mentioned, we'd love to hear about them. But for now, let's get into this week's case, the murders of Bill Payne and Billie Jean Hayworth. On January 31st, 2012, a young couple was found murdered in the home they shared in Mountain City, Tennessee. Both tragically and miraculously, their seven-year-old baby son was found alive in the arms of his deceased mother. While he had survived the incident, he was covered in blood and surely would suffer some lasting psychological damage. The murder of the friendly couple had shocked the community, but investigators didn't have to dig very deep to find likely suspects. And when the truth behind the murders was revealed, the bizarre motive and characters involved would thrust the tiny town of 2,500 into the national spotlight in a case that the media would dub the Facebook murders. At the time, the murders were stated by many in the media to be motivated by someone getting unfriended on Facebook. That's a very simplistic explanation, though it garnered the story plenty of attention. As we dive deeper into this case, it would become obvious that the real story is far more complex and unsettling. In the mid-twenties, Barbara and Buddy Potter and their adult daughter Janelle relocated to the small town of Mountain City, Tennessee, located close to the border of North Carolina. Janelle was in her twenties and had never managed to make any real friends, but rather than trying to make a fresh start in their new town, the family chose to keep to themselves and Janelle's social interactions took place almost entirely on social media. In school, she was known to be socially awkward, and she often started arguments with girls she barely knew. MySpace was launched when she was around 20 years old, and her world opened up. She could now befriend people as easily as clicking a button. People would often accept since she looked harmless enough, and Janelle's online friends were all she had other than her parents. She did actually have an older sister, but she seemed to be the only well-adjusted member of the family and had gotten out of there as soon as she could, never looking back. Janelle had lived with type 1 diabetes since she was little, and because of this, along with some other mental health issues, her parents coddled her and catered to her every need. Even as she became an adult, they continued to treat her like a child, totally incapable of doing anything on her own. It's not surprising that she would learn to use this to her advantage as she got older. Even as she neared 30, she continued to speak in a little girl voice and filled her room with her stuffed animal collection. Janelle's parents always insisted that she functioned at the same level as a 10-year-old, 
If this were true, she'd have to be the most manipulative 10-year-old I've ever heard of. While she may not be the most intelligent, strategic criminal around, she demonstrated a talent for deception that belied her delayed development. It's one thing to have your parents wait on your hand and foot, but Janelle never did anything alone. If she went to the store, one of her parents went with her, and if she stayed home, she was never alone. None of her family worked. Janelle had social security disability pay in relation to her diabetes and a hearing issue, and her father received disability in relation to an illness that required him to have an oxygen tank. With all this time together, the family became a simmering stew of mental health issues, delusions, and pathological lies. They seemed to feed into and reinforce each other's eccentricities. A few years after the family moved to Mountain City, Facebook became the hot new social media platform and Janelle jumped on board. She continued her habit of befriending strangers both in her hometown and all over the world. The simplified status-driven Facebook format gave her the ability to easily and quickly blast her every thought to all her Facebook friends. Her posts tended to be rather off-putting, as they often consisted of either hardcore fire and brimstone Christianity or extreme negativity. She also created fake male friends for herself, complete with Facebook profiles. She would post as these males on her Facebook wall, commenting how pretty and nice she was. This would be pitiable if her life hadn't taken such a horrifying turn. A few years after moving to Mountain City, Janelle made her first real-life friend. She met a local woman named Tracy, who pitied the social outcast and befriended her. Tracy was kind and tried to draw Janelle out of her social isolation. She invited her to various activities, and through Tracy, Janelle met her brother Bill Payne and her cousin Jamie Curd. Bill was in his 30s, cute and charming, and Janelle quickly developed a crush on him. While he was polite to Janelle, her crush was not reciprocated. After a while, Janelle began a secret romance with their cousin Jamie. He was older than her by over 20 years, but he had also never had a relationship. Her parents were extremely overprotective, especially since, to them, she was intellectually immature, and one would imagine they would never be happy with the fact that she had a boyfriend. But regardless, Jamie was most definitely not any parent's first choice, with his history of drinking and drugging and the considerable age gap. And so Janelle pretended he was just a friend, and he soon became close with the whole family. Based on later events, though, it seems likely that she still carried a torch for Bill Payne, despite this new relationship. Around 2009, a young, vivacious woman named Billie Jean Hayworth began working at the same company as Bill. And despite their age gap, Billie Jean was 23 and Bill was 36, the two became close and soon fell in love, 
and a year later they welcomed a baby boy named Tyler into the world. It seems as though Bill and Billie Jean's relationship was the catalyst for Janelle's behaviour, which had become increasingly peculiar and obsessive. She befriended Billie Jean and some of her friends on Facebook and began accusing them of bullying her, stalking her house and threatening her. She would call them on the telephone and accuse them of harassing her. She and her mother, Barbara, even accosted a few of these women in public, hurling abuse in their faces. These women were all very rattled, since they never actually had done anything to Janelle, and most had never even met her in person. There was absolutely no reason for their being the target of her anger. In reality, she was most likely channeling her jealousy over the relationship between Bill and Billie Jean in an unhealthy and irrational way. She was so emotionally stunted that she was still reacting to rejection in the way a child might, by starting a fight. Janelle's parents, of course, believed that the world was out to get their baby. They blindly believed her accusations that a group of adults, most of whom were strangers, was stalking and harassing her for no reason. Janelle accused them of being jealous of her beauty and kindness, and her parents supported her delusions. It's hard to say whether they actually believed her, or if they were simply trying to appease her. At one point, she showed them rocks that had supposedly been thrown into their yard by her enemies, Rocks with the names Bill and Billie Jean written on them in Sharpie. Janelle's anger continued to burn, but instead of fading as time went on, it only grew more intense. So far, Janelle's actions had been annoying, but mostly just pathetic. Now, however, they had taken a turn into something a lot more sinister and deadly. Hidden beneath her veneer of childlike innocent, lurked the capacity for darkness far greater than anyone ever expected. And as her plan for revenge began to take shape, she made a new internet friend, Chris, the CIA agent. Chris began emailing Janelle and her mother through Janelle's email account. He claimed to be watching over Janelle and protecting her against her enemies, Bill and Billie Jean. He claimed to have been watching the couple for some time, and he was certain they wanted her dead. He also claimed that they were hardcore drug dealers and had killed before, and Janelle was next on their list. Over a period of several months, he exchanged several hundred emails with Janelle and her mother. He explained that he regularly came into town to check on the Potter family and he'd paid close attention to the harassment campaign against Janelle. He talked a lot about how his job with the CIA gave him free license to kill people and that Bill and Billie Jean needed to be murdered. Funnily enough, he had similarly poor grammar and spelling to Janelle and cursed like a sailor throughout his emails. And, of course... He spent a significant amount of time telling Janelle how kind and pretty and perfect she was. This new fake identity of Janelle's is a direct reflection of her father's insistence that he himself had been part of the CIA. 
the whole Potter family insisted to anyone who'd listen that Buddy had high security clearance after countless important CIA missions. The truth was, when Buddy was in the military, he was a well-known liar, concocting elaborate stories about his involvement with the CIA and about his non-existent military decorations. His wife's fragile mental state meant that she too had deluded herself into believing that Buddy had been truly in the CAA for years, regardless of the fact that in their decades-long marriage, she'd never seen a single lick of evidence to suggest any affiliation with the CAA whatsoever. It seems that no one in the family had even the slightest idea of what the CAA actually did as an organisation. Barbara and Buddy accepted that some CIA agent was intensely invested in this small town social media drama without question and didn't think twice about the fact that this agent would talk incessantly about all the government sanctioned murders he'd been involved in. Chris also began to correspond with Janelle's boyfriend Jamie via text and email. His messages would insinuate that he feared that Janelle might become suicidal due to all the harassment she was receiving. Like any good scam artist, Janelle was carefully planting the seeds for her deadly plot. Before Janelle had come into the mix, Jamie had been close with his cousin Bill and they'd even lived together. But when Bill tried to convince Jamie that Janelle was bad news, a rift was created when Jamie chose Janelle over his own flesh and blood. And so, by the time CIA Chris appeared on the scene, Jamie and Bill were estranged. On January 31st, 2012, Bill and Billie Jean were living together at Bill's dad, Bill Sr., the couple's son, Tyler, was six months old by then, and they were a happy little family. Early that morning, a family friend went over to their house and walked in to find a grisly crime scene. Bill was shot, dead on the floor in the living room, shot in the head and slashed across his throat. As the friend went further into the house, they reached the entrance of the baby's room and saw Billie Jean lying dead on the floor, also shot in the head. Her son lay in her arms, covered in blood but thankfully unharmed. Even though this double murder had obviously been perpetrated by a depraved individual, at least they seemed to have the tiniest trace of decency to leave the baby boy unscathed. Both of the victims were already cold to the touch. The community was outraged, and as soon as the investigation was underway, fingers were quickly pointed toward the Potter family. The peculiar family with their very specific and well-known feelings about the victims. The Potters were quickly brought in for questioning, and immediately Janelle insisted that Billie Jean and her friends had bullied and threatened her because she was too pretty. By this stage, the police had already gathered a lot of information about this ludicrous drama from peripheral characters and had learnt that Jamie Curd had a relationship with Janelle. They questioned him and quickly ascertained that he was the weakest link among the group. After a short period of questioning, he revealed the truth. Chris, the CAA agent, 
had been telling them for months that Bill and Billie Jean were bad people and needed to die. He'd managed to convince them that the CIA had sanctioned their murder as legal and for the greater good. Both Jamie and Buddy seemed to wholeheartedly believe that Chris was a real person and that Janelle's life was at stake. And so, on the day of the murders, Jamie and Buddy went to the couple's house in the early morning hours and while Jamie was the lookout, Bill quickly walked in and shot Bill dead. Billie Jean heard the gunshot and went running for her baby and Buddy pursued her and ruthlessly shot her in the head as well. Buddy was a gun nut and relatively proficient with them and he had the tendency to carry one with him at all times. After listening to Jamie's story, law enforcement decided to offer him a plea deal if he helped them get Buddy to implicate himself in the crime. By now, Jamie had realised the murders were not in fact sanctioned by the government and that the CIA was never coming to bail him out, and so he took the deal. The police recorded a phone call between Jamie and Buddy in which the latter made his involvement obvious. Jamie had told police all about the CIA agent he'd been talking to and how Chris had been also emailing Janelle and Barbara. When a search was done on the Potter home, they were looking for evidence of that correspondence. Lucky for them, Barbara was the kind of person who prints and saves emails and they found hundreds of pages of email communication to and from Chris. They learnt his full name, Chris Jaden, and found pictures of him. And as they looked into it further, they found a man by that name in lower-level law enforcement in a neighbouring town. When they interviewed him, they discovered that he had known Janelle in high school. She had used his name and stolen his photos from his social media to create this imaginary CIA agent. As law enforcement read through the emails and began piecing things together, it became painfully obvious that Janelle was the driving force behind the murders. Over months and months of emails, she'd been simultaneously nudging Barbara, Buddy and Jamie towards the belief that this couple was dangerous and needed to die. Even though Janelle and her mother had not been present at the murders, they were charged along with Jamie and Buddy. Jamie accepted the plea deal and was sentenced to 25 years in prison. He also ended up testifying against the other three. The Potter women were each charged with two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and Barbara received an additional charge for tampering with evidence after she had been found trying to dispose of documents during the search of her house. Some of the items she was ripping up were printed pictures of Billie Jean, upon which someone had written various insults such as whore. Buddy was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. All three were found guilty on all charges and sentenced to life in prison. For Janelle, this meant a chance at parole after 51 years, when she will be 86. Unless something unexpected happens, Buddy and Barbara will likely die in prison. While Buddy eventually confessed to his roles in the crime, 
Neither Janelle nor Barbara have ever taken ownership or accountability in their crimes, nor shown any remorse. Even though Jamie and Buddy were the ones physically present at the murders, Janelle and Barbara seemed to be the masterminds behind the plan, though mastermind may be too kind a descriptor, given how ridiculous and harebrained the scheme actually was. Even after sentencing and being sent to prison, Janelle still insists her story is true. Bill and Billie Jean had been bullying her, and while she never wanted them dead, she did want the harassment to stop. She also insists that Chris is real, and she says she thought she had gone to high school with him. Despite the fact that computer forensics have conclusively proven that Chris's emails had all originated from the Potter's home computer, Janelle has never wavered in her story. She also still insists she was being bullied for being too pretty. There appears to have been some back and forth between Janelle and the couple and their friends, but nothing to the extent that Janelle describes, and whatever transpired was likely to be their reaction to her online and verbal attacks towards them. Much of the information from this story comes from the book written by Dennis Brooks, an assistant DA who was the prosecutor for all three trials. The book is called Too Pretty to Live and was published in 2016. It's an incredible true crime story and one we highly recommend, especially if you're interested in reading the many examples of the Chris emails. Janelle and her mother recently filed a request for a new trial based on evidence revealed in this book that has not been discussed at their trials. However, the judge has denied their requests because the evidence would not be exculpatory. Since spending time behind bars, Barbara has decided that it was in fact Jamie who created the whole scheme. She believes that he wanted his cousin and his cousin's girlfriend dead for whatever reason and so thought it a good idea to involve his girlfriend and her family. Of course, this theory gives no explanation for the emails from Chris or how they originated from the computer she shared with Janelle. Under Tennessee law, Jamie was first eligible for parole after serving 30% of his sentence. In 2015, after just over three years in prison, he went in front of the parole board and was denied. He will have the chance to try for parole again in 2019. In January of 2018, a prison guard employed at the Tennessee Prison for Women was fired after too much fraternisation with several prisoners, including both Potter women. Apparently, the guard had contacted a judge and the parole board in relation to the women, as she believed they were not receiving proper treatment behind bars. She also contacted each of the women's lawyers to pass along information regarding the status of their appeals, and spent quite a bit of time with the Potters and other inmates discussing their criminal cases in depth. All of these actions were in violation of the prison's fraternisation policies, and the guard was fired after less than a year in the role. It's somewhat impressive to see that even behind bars, the Potter women can still find someone willing to get in trouble for them. We hope you've enjoyed hearing about this case as much as we've enjoyed researching it. It was truly a case where fact is stranger than fiction. Thanks for tuning in, 
and we'll be back next week with a new topic. Until then, keep that nightlight on because you never know what awaits you in the dark.